How connected are you to the life of your local church right now? And how has a global pandemic and polarized political climate affected that connection? On so many fronts, the evangelical church is facing a unique season of difficulty and division. What would it look like to rediscover God's vision for the local church and strive toward unity? In today's episode, I'm talking with Jonathan Lehman about the vital importance of staying actively connected to a local church, especially after a year like 2020. Jonathan is the editorial director at Nine Marks in Washington, D.C., and the co-author with Colin Hansen of Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, it's good to have you back on the show. You've been uh, on the show a couple times now. Um, And today we're going to talk about a new book that you've co-written with Colin Hansen, uh, many people will know Colin Hansen from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, you work primarily with Nine Marks. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just share a little why, bit how. Why is it? Why isn't Colin here? <laughs> what's Col- What's What's Colin's deal? <laughs> Last I heard, he was he was in some cabin or something somewhere, uh, trying something to get away a, for something about a sabbatical. That's, that's right. right. I think Whatever. he works pretty hard. Um, but how Whatever. did you and how did you and Colin get together? and decide to write this book. You guys don't live near each other. You're not part of the same ministry. And yet you decided to write a book together. Colin and I are old friends. We, we've been hanging out and talking for a long time about lots of stuff. You know how you have different relationships that you're in constant text streams with people. Mm. Like Colin is one of my text stream friends, you know, stuff happens in the news and evangelical news and and Colin and I and a few others are are talking about it. So he's Mm. kind of one of those friends for me. And somebody who I trust and respect quite a bit. He's wise. He's sharp. He's godly. He's he has served as an elder. He serves rather as an elder uh, of his church down in Birmingham, and he has a burden to talk about those things, these types of things, just like I have a burden type uh, to talk about these types of things. And mm-hmm. I think coming out of the pandemic and watching what we've watched about. Uh, uh, with political division and strife and all of this going on in the last year or two, we thought, hey, let's let's work on this together. Um, I, I have kind of a nine marks perspective. He's got a TGC perspective, and we thought we would be stronger together than apart. Yeah, yeah. Unpack that a little bit. So you said you have a nine marks perspective, you know, versus a TGC perspective that Colin would bring. You know, pers- How- persnickety, sectarian, <laughs> really opinionated, strident. <laughs> no, no, seriously, what would be the, what are like the emphases or the the passions that would uh, you characterize your perspective on these things that might be a little bit different than Colin's? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, we are trying, Nine Marks is working hard to reach the pastor and the church leader, and specifically just to talk about the church, whereas Colin... His ambit, or the TGC ambit, includes that, but they're also targeting the larger Christian audience generally, mm. the church member generally. And so I think that yields in us slightly different sensibilities, right, about what we want to say and how we're trying to say it and who we're trying to reach. And I think those two things just work together really well for this particular project, which is all about, as the title says, Rediscovering Church. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, in addition to writing uh, articles and books, you host, you co-host uh, with Mark Dever the Pastors Talk podcast, a Nine Marks podcast. And so, I, I do wonder if you could put on that pastoral lens, the lens that you would you would kind of use when you sit down to record one of those shows. What would you say are the biggest questions or unknowns that you have in your own mind 
related to the future of the evangelical church after COVID? Maybe just after 2020. Yeah, sure. I, in one sense, I, I don't think there are any unknowns because the church hasn't changed. A lot of people these days talk about it like it has changed, like everything's different now. And mm. you, you'll see articles out there with those kinds of headlines. Church forever has changed. And, you know, that's clickbait is what that is. That's trying to draw people in. No, the, the, the church has been through pandemics. It's been through divisive political moments. It's been through great depressions and world wars and bubonic plagues and revolutions before, right? What we've gone through in the last few years isn't that dramatic when you look at the 2,000-year landscape, and yet Jesus promises his church will win. The Bible is the same. It's teaching the same thing, right? So in, in some sense, I, I wouldn't say there are unknowns, just friends, let's keep reading the Bible and keep mm. doing what it says, right? Mm. I think pastorally, some of the challenges pastors are fe- feeling right now and experiencing, and that you know, I would want to help them, encourage them with, and members as well, is questions about virtual church. Is that is that something that we should take seriously? A live stream? Well, what about that? Uh, I just just even today, uh, talking to a number of pastors ta- uh, who who are mentioning the fact that. There seems to be a kind of Christian migration going on, political migration, folks leaving their churches and going to more conservative churches or going to more liberal churches or churches that care less about these sorts of pandemic requirements and more about other things, right? So it does seem like the board is being shuffled a little bit. Mm. I think the larger picture is is as culture secularizes, um, on the one hand, we've always expected as culture secularizes, there's going to be a widowing out of nominal Christians, right? Yeah. Nominal Christians as it becomes more costly to follow Jesus. We've, you know, for several decades, a number of us have been assuming non-Christians are going to, or nominal Christians are going to fall off. It's just, it's not socially advantageous for me anymore to call myself a Christian, even though I'm getting clients for my insurance biz. Yeah, I'm just, I'm done. It's not quite that simple though. I think as cultural secularizes, you're going to see several more complicated trends, such as some people are going to feel compelled to go to a church that's a little bit more culture warrior-y, right? Whether on the right or on the left. And so what that means is pastors are experiencing those kinds of migrations. One pastor said, yeah, I had five families leave my church just in the last six months to go to this other particular church, which Mm. was known to be a more of a Oh, it's a true church. It's, a, I think, a gospel-preaching church, but it, you know, it emphasizes culture warrior elements a little bit more. And so these are the things I think churches and, and Christians are experiencing and pastors are observing. I mean, we could talk about not going to church at all, but yeah. I, I assume you'll want to talk about that at some point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we'll get into that. I, I, think, I think when people probably say that they feel like church has changed or... They're worried about that. Some of it has to do with just some of those, you know, surveys that have been done, stats that have been taken that do seem to indicate that at least within our own lifetimes, maybe not in view of the entire sweep of church history, there maybe are a number of factors that are contributing together right now to to perhaps cause a season of what feels like upheaval and chaos and change. Uh, I know even before the pandemic started, the number of people who identify as Christians in the U.S., far surpassed even the number of people who actually attend a weekly church meeting. You guys draw that out in your book a little bit. Um, and then I think even if you go further, the, the number of people who are actually serving and involved in a church is even smaller than that. So I, I guess, what would you say that pre-pandemic reality that is perhaps only going to be 
more uh, at play uh, post. What does that say about the health of the American church generally? Yeah, no, let me let me let me clarify. Certainly, circumstances can change, right? The challenges we can face at any given moment can change. I think one of the main messages of the book, just even in that word "re" or that those letter "re," rediscover, is to say the church hasn't changed. Circumstances, yes. Mm, yeah. Environment, cultural realities, yes. Not the Bible, not the church. Its mission hasn't changed. What Jesus calls to hasn't changed, and and so forth. Um, to to your question. Wait, what was your question? <laughs> well, just that even before the pandemic, you know, the number of people who would maybe claim the name Christian, uh, as you've already acknowledged, is sort of that nominal group is decreasing. And yeah, even right. even within that group, the number of people who claim that name and are actively participating in their in a local church is is a fraction of that that broader group. So, so what does that say about the, I guess, the health of the American church generally, even before the pandemic hit? where we just have um, right. involvement in a church in a meaningful sense is just so low. Right. I mean, to your question, I, I, I think I think there are many healthy bits in churches and many healthy churches out there, and I don't want to denigrate that. I don't want to overlook and fail to give praise to the Lord Jesus for his work in many churches doing doing gospel preaching, gospel evangelizing, discipling, uh, in fact, in, in many respects, brother, I, I see more and more churches getting healthy mm. on the one hand. Okay, so I think that is going on, and I think we sin by failing to acknowledge it and give praise to God for it. Okay, on the other hand, yeah, I think there are a number of trends that are concerning and that are just a continuation of what we've been seeing for decades. So if post 1950s, 60s, 70s, Robert Schuller led out, you know, attractional churches in which we go to the non-Christian, and he, he literally did this door to door. Hey, what keeps you from going to church? Mm. Tell us, tell us what you want. Now let me conform myself to what you are missing and what you want out of church. I mean, he literally did that, and he 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 had a he had a uh, a training camp where five to 800 pastors a year, including Rick Warg and Bill Hybels, interestingly, went out to his training camp to learn how to do what Robert Schuller said. And and that kind of spawned what we understand or what we kind of describe as seeker-sensitive churches or attractional churches in which I'm trying to say to the non-Christian world around me, hey, we can be like you. Let's find common ground. When you come in, you're going to hear not weird organ music. You're going to hear familiar Beatles right. sounding music or whatever. Okay, well now in a nominal Christian culture, that kind of works. You know, people will show up and say, "Oh, you do have a lot of common with me," and that that's kind of cool. And okay, you want me to trust in Jesus? All right, He's going to give me purpose. Yeah, I like that. Sure, uh, quote unquote works. Well, what happens is a culture increasingly secularizes. What happens when the demands are LGBT demands? right, or identitarian mm. demands of one kind. Well, that attractional seeker sensitivity um, uh, program method just gets harder and harder. Mm. You kind of have to go farther to reach them on their terms, which inevitably leads to a kind of compromise. And so I think we see more of that going on in churches, churches wondering, can we accept these things in culture as, as we attempt to, to reach out, right? And I, I think those general tendencies uh, of, of pragmatically driven, 
often well-meaning tendencies do hurt the church, and I think they do lead to unhealth of the kind that you're describing. And sure enough, more and more people are going to say, yeah, this Christianity uh, is too costly. I call myself a Christian, but this is just too costly. It it worked in 2005, but the demands of LGBT, this is is one example, demands of 2021, yeah, I I can't, I can't pay those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if, if questions about uh, nominal Christians and their involvement in the church kind of might be in people's minds right now. It seems like another issue that is definitely seems like front and center uh, in our experience of quote unquote church over the last 12 months or so has been just the deep divisions within our churches that have been exposed or created. Maybe uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Were these things there before we just didn't know or uh, are they kind of new in some real sense? But Divisions related to politics and race and social justice and the correct response to abuse and gender roles and all of that. There's so much swirling around that feels like at times it's kind of ripping our churches apart from the inside out. So I wonder, do, yeah. do you think those were, those divisions were there before in the same way that they are now and we just see them differently? Or is there something new happening in the last couple years, even one year, that, uh, that is kind of a new thing? Yeah, great question. I mean, each of these issues, if if like the ones you just named, are very different and kind of have to be taken each in turn. Let let, let me start with questions of abuse and 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 sexual abuse and scandals and cover up and and so forth. Um, yeah, that 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 is a big problem, and there is a knee jerk instinct to just want to defend ourselves and say, no, we're innocent. Those are just people going after God's people. That's terrible. And there is some false charges, and 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 due process is required. And I, uh, I, I think people can get a little too much on the bandwagon of making unfounded accusations. So that is a problem. At the same time, and so and so, scripture does call for a kind of impartiality. At the same time, scripture calls for a certain disposition towards the weak and the vulnerable and the hurting. And so I think there should be Christian instincts in us that say that listen and respond and say, okay, have, have we failed to protect the, the exploited and the abused? Are there things here for us to learn? And so there needs to be that posture in this moment. Absolutely. And in fact, in some ways, if, if, I think nine marks exists for this very purpose. Hmm. The, the reason we talk about things like membership and discipline and discipling and getting involved in one of those lives and transparency. And, you know, if you, if you, if you come attend, say a Capitol Hill Baptist sermon, there's a one out of two chance you're going to hear, you know, Mark Dever talking about the call to living transparent, open lives, mm, yeah. and correcting sin in one another's lives. Why do we do that? Precisely because so much abuse, among other things, has gone under the radar screen, and that should not be. Church discipline is is one of the best preventative cures I know for it, aside from other things we could talk about, right? And And so, yeah, there is a... A moment of reckoning, I think, for many churches uh, on these questions, and I pray that we would respond well in the moment. And I, I you know, if people are just going to defend anonymous, non-accountable, non-disciplined church lives, I, I, they're going to reap what they sow. And uh, I, I do think there's a better and more biblical way, right? I think the Scripture gives us what we need. So okay, yeah, that's that's one whole complex of issues, and then and then moving to the race thing. Oh goodness, 
you know, Matt, I, I don't know that I have a lot of wisdom on this one. Certainly, uh, division has been is, has been exposed. Is is it new division? I don't think so. I think the division has been there for a long time. Uh, it's been there both in uh, a lack of trust and antipathy between uh, minorities and majority cultures. I think it's been there in um, various sins that have been hidden. I think it's been there in very different politics. Now, what's interesting is, in my own experience of the Young Restless Reform Movement, there was a window, 10, 15-year window, Mm. in which it seemed like there was a lot of new unity and reconciling going on. And honestly, a lot of a lot of reformed hip hop was sort of let out in that, hey, here we are all at the TGC conference, the T4G conference, and everybody's getting along, and this is great, and we all believe in a big God theology, and then we all believe in, you know, substitutionary atonement, praise the Lord, and an authoritative, inerrant scripture. And for, for about a 10-year window, I think we felt a lot of unity that was super encouraging. Then a number of things happened politically, and I'm just I'm recycling what others have said. I'm not saying anything, you know, terribly new or insightful here. I'm, I'm just repeating what I've heard other more insightful brothers say. <laughs> you know, then 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 a kind of 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, there was a number of things in culture, including police. Uh, you know, those kind of face famous police brutality situations that were caught on iPhones, the election of Donald Trump. These kinds of things happened, and I, I think. What you found is, or what we've been seeing, is that in many cases, the theology hasn't necessarily changed. I think minority, majority brothers and sisters still agree on a lot of the same theology, but their political instincts have emerged very differently. Hmm. And so we've experienced some of that division, very much on the surface things, as we talk about things like the black exodus that, that many have remarked on. And that's that's been t- terribly sad and, and, and difficult to watch. You know, whatever side you, you come down on, on that particular thing, it's it's been very tough to watch. You know, hey, these are brothers I used to stand in the pews with and sing with, and now we have a hard time talking about these things. And hmm. wait, what are you what are you saying? I don't get it. Why, why are you responding that way? Is this a problem in me? Is this a problem in you? And so so there's been a lot of surface level of division and how this plays out in the long run, you know, the Lord knows. Uh, I pray again that we can not immediately indict the other side. We can act with charity. We can um, reaffirm the gospel doctrines that we hold in law uh, together, even as we examine certain differences on ethical and political matters. Hmm. You know, are these things that we should really divide over at the Lord's table or are these things that we can come together at the Lord's table and still find unity? And that that's just a super difficult project that requires mature, godly, benefit of the doubt giving, charitable Christian brothers and sisters to have those kinds of conversations. And yeah, I, th- I think we need to have more of them. Mm. Yeah, it seems like there was a, a time, it's still emphasized in a lot of ways, maybe even in the, the names of two organizations we've already mentioned, Together for the Gospel and the Gospel Coalition. It, it seems like there's a, almost seems quaint at times now, a way of thinking about doctrine and its power to unify. And as you kind of said Many of the people today within the, the broadly evangelical church would agree on virtually every key doctrinal issue. 
Um, and yet there are still, seems like there's these divisions that are along the lines of uh, political inclinations or instincts or policy ideas there that, that do divide. So you know, putting on your pastor's hat and thinking about people in the pew experiencing these dynamics where they might, again, theologically be in unity with somebody, but there's just other issues that seem like they're dividing them. What, what advice would you give to two Christians who, uh, who, who wonder if the theology really has that power to unify if we're still so divided on these other things? Yeah, that's it's a great question, and I think that's what a lot of people are experiencing. A, f- a few, a few, few words of of counsel. Uh, number one, recognize the call to care about issues of justice. Justified people care about justice, and while you're doing that, also recognize that it's the Bible alone which helps us understand, or it gives us the true definition of justice. Now, we might use different resources to help us understand these things better, fine, but but ultimately, we as Christians need to work together to see what the Bible says about justice. And, and the reason Political issues can be, there's a number of reasons political issues can be so divisive. And and one is that it's very much an outworking of what we think our gospel requires, right? Mm -hmm. We understand that justified people should, as a property of their justification, as an outworking of their justification, care about justice. So if you and I, Matt, come to differences over whether or not justice requires this particular thing, that tempts me, that provokes me to say, Matt, you you obviously don't see that this is a justice issue. I mean, goodness gracious, don't you see that your gospel and your claim to the gospel means you should care about this? And, yeah, right. And, and, and if, I, if I'm really careless, I might even start to question your salvation. How can you call yourself a Christian, Matt, and you, you don't see this clear implication? I might not say that, but in some level, that accusation is implicit in mm, me. Yeah. And what I'm failing to do is, is, a, first do the hard biblical study of seeing what the Bible requires of justice. And now here's the second thing. B, recognize the distinction between biblical judgments and our own judgments. Okay? So, you know, God has revealed certain things in Scripture. But then our call to make political judgments does require a measure of human wisdom. And I, I need to recognize that God's wisdom and God's judgments are are binding. My own judgments, they don't rise to that level. And as soon as I begin treating my judgments about what's necessary in this or that situation, there is a sense in which I'm almost acting like an apostle who can reveal the word of God. Mm. And I want to just say, hold on, you are not God. You are not apostle. Yeah, I'm not trying to say it's all relative. I'm just saying, do not put your own political and historical judgments at the same level of scripture, please. Mm. Yeah. Okay? Lest, lest you be a cult leader. The, the other thing we need to do, a third thing we need to do is I think take care to have a, a strong and developed doctrine of Christian freedom and to recognize that you and I might come to different judgments, Matt, over what justice requires, and yet we can still come to the Lord's table together. Hmm. Right? This need not divide us. I can feel I can feel strongly about the fact that reparations in this moment is a good idea or a bad idea. I, I can feel strongly at this moment or that moment that that American history is characterized by this level of racism or, or not this level of racism. 
But do I really want my judgments over American history or my judgments over whether or not reparations are, are necessary right now to divide me from you at the Lord's table? And I, I, I think f- folks on both the right and the left want to say, no, yeah, <laughs> you have to agree with me. Mm-hmm. And I want to leave some of these issues, not all issues, but some of these issues very much in the Christian freedom bucket. But the thing is, I think we Americans tend to have a very anemic, weak view of Christian freedom. Mm, yeah. And ever since 1776, we've kind of said, my way or the highway, King George. <laughs> right? <laughs> and we've been that way ever since. So, so do you feel like you have you've see examples then of this in, let's say, your church and in your relationships of Christians who who do disagree on some things, and yet, nevertheless, uh, find a way to stay unified in the gospel, stay unified even in their worship together. Because I think, I'm sure some people listening could say, that sounds great in theory, but is that actually going to happen? Yeah, great question. I mean, yes, in the context of relationships in my own local church, trust is so broken down uh, over these kinds of issues i you know i've been highlighting racial issues but it, it, it's broader than that sort of you know we could talk about complementarianism and the instincts that play there and again you mentioned abuse and the, the instincts that there sort of sort of more conservative political sensibilities and slightly more progressive political sensibilities i mean trust between different sides uh, of these issues has broken down and when there is not trust and it's hard to gain trust when there's not relationship um it is very hard to make progress. And so most of what I've been doing these days is just working within the context of my own congregation mm-hmm. and friendships and having those kinds of quiet conversations. I've not been publishing a lot on these issues lately. I don't know that Colin has either. I'm, I'm not sure. But I can sure tell you we've been talking a lot about it, but we do it privately in the context of trusting relationships where somebody can say, well, what, what did you mean by that? That struck me as offensive. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. This mm. is what I meant. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That, that, and frankly, you can't, you just can't do that on Twitter. Mm. You, you, you can't do that in blog articles. It's even hard to do in books. So in that sense, I, I want to say as much, as much as, you know, I, I, as it were, make my career writing these kinds of things. Uh, my, my advice to people listening is if you're not building relationships, forming relationships in the context of your own local church or other Christians around you, yeah, I'm, I, I suspect you're not going to be much help mm, when yeah. it comes to the, the publishing, whether tweets or books side of things. Mm, yeah. So friends, pursue these in your own life. Let's shift over then to another related topic here, um, moving from controversies to just uh, the importance of being together uh, in this uh, in this kind of chaotic world that we've we're living in uh, of late. Uh, it's interesting here in April of 2020, right as the pandemic was getting really getting started in the U.S., uh, you published One Assembly with Crossway, your your previous book. A book ironically argue- timed. Yeah, I, well, I want to get into that. So it's a book arguing for the importance of churches actually physically gathering together at one time in one place, <laughs> yeah. uh, pushing back even against you know multi-site, multi-service live streaming stuff. So first question: Do you ever wonder what God had in mind when He was orchestrating that timing? Was it was that like was He trying to teach you something with that? Do you think? I'd like to assume he's trying to teach everybody else something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it really was. It really was providential. Gosh, <laughs> right? 
Gather, 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 says the book. The pandemic said, sorry, nobody can gather. Nobody can right? gather. That's, that, that's, that's basically what happened. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it did. It, it actually, it gave me a lot of material to have a lot of conversations, both in person and in article form. Hmm. So suddenly everybody was talking about, should we gather? And here I have, okay, check out this book. Uh, here's some arguments and, and my own article writing at nine marks and elsewhere was able to sort of draw on the material produced there. So hmm. by God's strange providence. Yeah. It, it did seem that the, the timing was, was uh, helpful yeah. for, for talking about some of these things and, and to provide a resource. Now the, the, the pandemic did require one of those exceptional moments. And I make room for that in the book. You know, there are exceptional moments in a church's life where you can't do what scripture would have you do mm. when it comes to matters of church, uh, church structure and, and, and gatherings and so forth. Uh, nonetheless, as we, as we pull out of it increasingly out of the pandemic and the quarantines, um, I, I think these principles are more germane than ever. Yeah, I guess I was wondering what impact did the experience of uh, not just in your own church, but seeing all churches you know, around the world even kind of go to a, uh, a model where we weren't able to meet in person for a while, uh, again, varying lengths of time that people weren't probably able to be together. Uh, maybe there were some exceptions to that, but many, many churches couldn't meet. Uh, did that cause you to perhaps soften or maybe harden any of your views that you you kind of explained in one assembly or have your views changed at all uh, through the experience of the pandemic or not not really i i would say they they didn't change at all if anything they made me recognize realize the value of gathering more than ever because precisely in those ways that so many so many of us watched our churches the word dissipate is too strong um we watched our churches for a few months <clears throat> kind of go on to life support. Mm. Uh, we, we watched fellowship attenuate and the sense of shared identity and mission weaken. Now, I feel like these things are being recovered now, but th- there were a few months. Those first couple of months uh, of 2020 when, when things, you know, shut down. Or those of us who are pastors and we're trying to keep track of our congregations and, and see how people were doing and how sheep were faring really could feel the, the, the stretch that was going on. It's like, where, where's the flock? Where'd mm. they go? Yeah. How are people doing? And, and, you know, some people, I mean, I, not, nobody in my church, but a, other close friends of mine uh, had, had sheep who abandoned the faith. Um, people who fell into temptation in significant ways. Uh, speaking of abuse, we've been talking about that. Uh, it was a terrible time for abused uh, w- w- women in, in, in abusive marriages. And uh, obviously, you know, we do all we can to get them out of that. But sometimes these things are out of your hands and you, you watch the pandemic make it worse. And uh-huh. Anyhow, so, so I think the experience of all of that, if anything, just strengthened my convictions. Churches gather. A gathering is part of what constitutes the church as a church. And watching other people respond, I think a lot of people in general had that same response. I'm not the only one. And at the same time, I saw some people go the other direction. Some people were like, hey, this is kind of nice. I don't mm, I yeah. stay in my pajamas. I can, I can log on. Uh, I dare say I don't think that was a very good response. Mm, I don't yeah. know how common it was. But I, I don't think it was a mature, healthy response. Hmm. 
So in the conversations you're having, how would you say that pastors are doing right now? Well, 2020 and even early 2021 was, I've heard again and again and again, one of the hardest years for many a pastor. It was a very difficult year uh, between suddenly having to become an experts on epidemiology and mask wearing and social distancing and lawsuits, civil (laughs) live broadcast and civil disobedience. I mean, just the whole pandemical side of things was, was very difficult. Uh, And then members responding differently. No, we have to do this. We can't do this. You know, why are you so insensitive? And then add to it all the election stuff, all the political stuff. And, you know, on the one hand, you had the George Floyd protests in the summer of 2020, followed by the Trump protests in, you know, January 6th. And uh, not all, but many of the pastors I know and talk to, and there have been quite a few, said it was one of their hardest years ever. In fact, a number of guys just decided to get out of the ministry. Hmm. Uh, now, I think the last few months, I mean, here we are having a conversation in June of 2021. The last few months have been a little calmer. Things have aren't quite as hot as they were. And uh, I think a lot of guys are super, super grateful for that because the previous 12 months were really were difficult. Hmm. Yes. What would you say to the pastor right now who is still feeling uh, burned out and, and just, and maybe is in that zone of thinking, you know, I'm not really sure I want to do this anymore. What, what would you say to him? Uh, number one, I mean, it's possible you, God is calling you onto something else. I, I wouldn't exclude that as, as, as a possibility necessarily. And talk to the, uh, your fellow church leaders, talk to other pastors and other churches who you know and trust and ask if that's the case or, or is the case that you need a sabbatical, you need a rest. A, a close friend of mine, he, he said to his wife, honey, I, I think I need a sabbatical. And she just started crying, you mm. know, and kind of a yes, please. She, about she knew time. that. Uh. She knew that. And uh, she needed the sabbatical too, right? And so he went to his fellow leaders, his fellow elders and said, guys, I, I really need a sabbatical. And they were super supportive. It was great. And he actually has recently started it. So maybe you just need a time of rest. Again, ask your your friends, your fellow pastors, your fellow elders, your other pastors of other churches who you know and trust. Hey, is is, is God maybe calling me onto something else or do I just need a, a break? Do I need a rest? And uh, I mean, there's all that. But then finally, you know, we have to go back to solid biblical truths to remind ourselves of well as well. Um, brother, pastor, God is sovereign and Jesus wins. He is not threatened by divisions in your congregation. He is not threatened by the folks on the right who can't believe you prayed those things and folks on the left who think you should pray more of these other things and talk about more of these other things. Jesus is not worried a bit and your job has not changed. You don't need to be an expert on everything out there. You need to be an expert on the Bible. And you've been training to do that for years and you can do that and you keep preaching that Bible. You keep praying. That's the most important thing you to do. Keep preparing excellent sermons, pray for the people of God and you're going to be okay. Mm. Mm. Maybe as a last, a last question then, what would you say to the, the lay Christian uh, who, you know, as already starting to head back to in-person church, uh, maybe they haven't quite yet for whatever reason, and, and they're feeling a level of uh, anxiety about that, or maybe just a level of apathy. They, they maybe uh, understand that there are some 
divisions or they don't necessarily agree with everything that their pastor or elders have done over the last year, or they've seen social media posts from fellow members with things that they didn't necessarily agree with. What would you say to that lay Christian who's kind of wondering, eh, is it really worth uh, jumping back into that? Yeah. I mean, it very much depends on the person. Apathy and anxiety are very different things. Um, but just, just kind of general advice for anybody and everybody. Uh, <clears throat> number one, recognize that gathering with God's people, I'm sorry, not gathering with God's people is not good for you spiritually. Jesus set up Christianity. He designed it to function around and for you to be supplied with life and to grow in discipleship through gathering with other Christians. Now, God in his providence at times hinders us from gathering. Maybe you're sick. Maybe there's a pandemic. You can't gather. All that's in God's design as well. But in general, not gathering is not good for you spiritually. Uh, Think about Hebrews 10, which talks about uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together uh, so that we, we may gather and stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's as I, as I gather with other Christians that I'm stirred up to love and good deeds, right? Hmm. Maybe I'm, I've been doubting with, with doubt all week. Does God really love me? Well, it's as I gather with the brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm reminded, oh, yes, God God does love me. M- maybe maybe I'm feeling cynical towards a certain sister, but then I'm you know there I'm in the church service. I see her singing the saying songs of praises me, and I'm reminded, I'm, I'm reminded yeah, yeah, we are. We are one in the gospel. Maybe I, maybe I think that, um, yeah, this next election is the most important thing in the world. And I'm kind of being distracted by all of that. But then, but then I hear the preacher talking about the certainty of Christ's victory no matter what. And I'm like, okay, maybe the election isn't as important as I thought it was. Hmm. Right? So, friend, not gathering with the church is not good for you spiritually, I want to say. And so far as you're racked with anxiety over over these things, number one, I mean, can can you can you find any sort of accommodations? Maybe a section of the building you can sit in that feels a little more safe than, to, to you. Number two, I guess I would also remind you that your spiritual health is, in the final analysis, more important than your physical health. I want to do all I can to accommodate both. Absolutely. Nonetheless, don't underestimate fail to recognize how crucial your discipleship is to Christ and, again, how the gathering is crucial to your discipleship. Uh, the, the last thing I would say is that if you have reached a point where you no longer trust your pastors, maybe you're, maybe it's your fault, maybe it's their fault, maybe, maybe it's immaturity in you, maybe it's something foolish they've done. I don't know. I don't need to adjudicate that right now. But what I can say, if, you, if you've reached a point where you just no longer trust your pastors, I, I would encourage you to find a church where you can trust the pastors. And if, if your pastors right now are godly men, they would rather you be in a church where you can sit and hear the preaching of God's word unhindered by that breakdown in trust um, <clears throat> in, in, in another place. So d- don't stick around necessarily and just, just be contentious. Rather find a church where you can trust the pastors. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for helping us think through uh, some of the issues that we're all wrestling with uh, when we think about returning to church and uh, getting plugged back into our local bodies. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much, brother. Really appreciate it. That was Jonathan Lehman on the central importance of the local church for all Christians. For more, be sure to check out the book he co-authored with Colin Hansen, Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off today by visiting crossway.org plus. 
That's crossway.org slash plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.